take your Bibles and let's go back to 1 Peter. 1 Peter, we're in chapter 2. It has been a few weeks since we've been able to be in our study as we've remembered and focused on the Easter holidays. Had a great few weeks considering Christ's work on his cross and his resurrection for us. Be looking at verses 18 through 25 in just a few moments. By nature, we all really struggle to handle being treated unfairly. That can often upset us more deeply than most other things. We hate it. We react strongly to it, don't we? This past week, we were watching a playoff basketball game, and one of the players was called for a foul while another player drove by him for a layup. He was playing defense. And in the replay, it showed him unintentionally, or maybe not so much, receiving an elbow to his jaw. And for the next several minutes, with a look of extreme frustration and exasperation, you know how they do, he scurried all over the court, showing anyone who would look. He was pulling down his lip and saying, look, there's blood there. Look, I got fouled. And he wanted everybody to know on TV, on the court, that the refs had missed that call. That he'd been treated unfairly. I don't think he would act that way in normal everyday life. But he wanted everyone to know how he felt about the unfair treatment he'd received on the court. How are you responding today to unfair treatment in your life? Our passage this morning, we're going to see that God calls his people to endure unjust situations. Even as Christ endured unjust suffering for us. God calls his people to endure unjust situations. This does not seem right. We'll see what God does as he works through the unjust things that we suffer as we consider the text together. As we come back to this text, I want to go back and begin our reading this morning in verse 11. So 1 Peter chapter 2, we'll begin reading in verse 11. Look there with me. This is God's word to us this morning. Verse 11 says, Behold, beloved rather, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. That's not just lusts, sexual lusts. It's any kind of passion. It's any kind of sinful desire to make much of yourself, which wage war against your soul. And here's his goal. This is now the overriding command for this section. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's Peter's goal. Now he's going to give us several illustrations. The first one we see in verses 13 through 17. Be subject, submit yourself, obey for the Lord's sake. Not for human sake, not for just getting along. For the Lord's sake, be subject to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by that emperor to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Notice verse 15, for this is the will of God. So that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, 
Recognize you're free to serve God. Though you have human authorities, you really are under God's authority first and foremost. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants or slaves or bondservants of God. That's whose servants you are. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. And now verse 18, servants. Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle master, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing. In the sight of God. He's paying attention. Verse 21. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you. Leaving you an example. So that you might follow. In his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled. He did not revile in return. When he suffered. He did not threaten. But continued entrusting himself. To him, that is God the Father, who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's ask for his help as we consider this passage together. Father, Give us grace to understand what it is that you're saying. Help me to be able to explain it clearly. Help us as your people to be able to respond with humility, to repent where we need to, to rejoice and thank you where we ought, Lord, and to desire to commit our way to you again. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you're a Christian this morning, from this passage, God is calling you to endure Unjust, suffering without bitterness, revenge, or the desire to strike back in return. And I think if you've been paying close attention to this, you'd recognize that this, this is a hard word. But it's a needed word for us today. We need to hear this particular passage because as believers, even within our conservative Christian circles, we have largely embraced the thoughts and sentiments of our world. We instinctively seek to justify our anger, our critical spirit, when we identify a wrong that's done by an authority, a wrong that's done to us or to others. We tend to justify our reactions by pointing out and dwelling on the areas where that wrong has been done. Often we're truly being mistreated by another sinner. That, that's true. But we seek to respond by punishing, belittling, tearing down, criticizing, demeaning, or getting even. And we, we call this in our minds, this is justice. They did wrong to me, I can respond in kind. And it seems that less and less you will hear even Christians say, yes, I've been unjustly hurt, let down, mistreated. And yes, they deserve to be brought to justice for their wrong actions and rebuked. But I choose not to be bitter, not to retaliate, not to criticize or slander. 
I will choose to return good for evil, and I will bless rather than curse. One pastor of today states of this passage, this is not merely a rule to be kept, but a miracle to be experienced and grace to be received. Do you hear the challenge of this text? Please hear me carefully. This is not a sermon I'm trying to preach at you in any way. This is a passage that is acutely painful to read if we're being honest with where our hearts tend to be. It's a painful passage in that it's a rebuke to us as we hear it and as I preach it. I know I'm desperately in need of growing in these graces myself. And I think if you're honest this morning, you'll recognize I need to hear this. This is contrary to the way that I think. It's certainly contrary to the way that our society today tells you to respond. We need to hear this word from God because it's so natural and so easy to respond in kind when we feel we're wrong. When we feel we're wronged. It's so natural and easy to lose all thought of what God might be doing in our lives when he allows us, when he leads us into situations where we face unfair treatment. We just think, God, that, that, that can't be right. I've got to fix this. Now, we might think that this passage does not have much to say about our lives because it begins by saying servants. And there, there's an idea of slavery. We don't live in a society that tolerates slavery. But in a sense, everyone with a job and an employer is voluntarily submitting himself to that role of a servant for at least 40 hours every week. And there are significant parallels here to what it means to be a godly employee. Now, I want to make sure that we get the right tone for this passage. Because I think when we identify our need that this passage is addressing, it can feel like a rebuke or a correction. But that's not the tone that Peter is giving us in this letter. Pastor and author Sinclair Ferguson summarizes that in this section, Peter is saying that the gospel works everywhere. In every conceivable situation, no matter how unfair or difficult. This is a positive statement that the gospel works for even those that are most likely to be mistreated and trampled. And the gospel, by its perspective, gives you freedom and hope and confidence in those circumstances. The passage demonstrates that if you're a believer, the gospel can and will certainly work in your life. It will give you a right perspective. It will free you from those feelings of retaliation. The gospel works in very difficult circumstances. He said previously, in a state that is hostile to the gospel. He's saying here, with a slave owner that is hostile to the gospel. Next week we'll see in chapter 3, the gospel works with a husband who's hostile to the gospel. So how does a Christian live for the glory of the Lord when it seems like he is under an ungodly authority? That's the question being asked. This morning we'll consider this passage in two parts. First, the suffering of innocent servants. The suffering of innocent servants. Now, Peter continues with applications and illustrations of areas where Christians are to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. This is the second one we've seen. 
But now we come to a term here in verse 18 that we need to talk about for just a moment as we introduce this text. The term for servant here is not the more common word for slave in the New Testament. It's the word for a household slave. And when we hear that word slave, there are certain ideas and concepts and feelings that are triggered. And I think that's actually okay and right. But we need to make sure we hear this passage. Slavery in the first century was very different from American slavery of the 1700s and 1800s. It was different in that it was not based on a single race. But was often an economic slavery. Many were made slaves as prisoners of war. Others could place themselves into slavery voluntarily in order to work off debt. Some slaves in the first century could earn enough wages to even buy their own freedom. Many were very well educated, holding responsible positions in the home, such as teacher or doctor, nurse, musician, or scribe. And in situations like these, they were far better educated than their master. And yet we don't want to overstate that. Every single one of them was under the complete authority and control of their masters. They were considered even pieces of property. And we'd recognize that's not right. And perhaps you're thinking, why doesn't the Bible condemn slavery outright? Certainly, we know that's wrong, don't we? And we have to admit, the Bible never directly condemns slavery. If it's so wrong, why doesn't it? Well, let me give you three reasons and then a caution. They might not fully satisfy you. There are many great works that would explain how the Bible addresses this. There's lots of differences probably to understand. But I want to try to help by giving three reasons and then a caution. First, the New Testament is realistic. We need to understand that although the Bible doesn't directly condemn slavery as a social institution, it does not endorse it in any way either. It does teach that stealing others, so a slave trader, is expressly forbidden. It is sin. It is wrong. In 1 Timothy 1, it's listed among those who do not know Christ. This would mean that the slave trade in America's history was absolutely forbidden by Scripture. But the New Testament is realistic in that it would have been extremely dangerous for the New Testament writers to incite some kind of slave revolution. This would have been impossible under Rome to achieve. Another reason is that the New Testament is intended to be a practical book. It's not written to change all the social ills of the day. The New Testament authors are not trying to right all the wrongs in society. And remember that New Testament believers are already under attack for not worshiping the emperor as God. They're saying they're worshiping the wrong gods. They're evil people. They have strange customs. They believe in cannibalism because they participate in the Lord's Supper. He's not trying to add more hardships to their lives. You see, the goal of the New Testament is to provide believers with an understanding of how to live in the world in which they find themselves. The New Testament is teaching that change happens from the inside out as a believer embraces the truths of God's word. That's really important to keep in mind because I think sometimes we think it should come by social reform and there are proper places for that. But that's not the focus of what the New Testament is doing. 
final reason is that the New Testament is focused on what matters most. That doesn't mean this isn't an important issue, but it's not most important. The Bible isn't intending to tell us how to fix a temporal society. It's not focused first on our individual rights, and that means a lot to us in this country, and that's fine. But our job is to, as Christians, submit ourselves to the Word. And the Word is focused on the kingdom of Jesus Christ and its influence. Paul writes on this subject in 1 Corinthians 7, 21 through 24, and he says, were you called while a slave? It should not be a concern to you. Now, before you hear that phrase and think, not a concern, let him continue. He says, but if you can become free, by all means, take the opportunity. For he who is called by the Lord as a slave is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he who is called as a freed man into Christianity is Christ's slave. That's the bigger picture. You were bought at a price, Christ's blood. Do not become slaves of men. Don't see yourself that way. This is, again, a matter of perspective. How do you identify yourself? By your social condition? By your demographic? Or by your relationship with Jesus Christ? You see how Paul's focused on the believer's identity, not an individual citizen of a country, as a slave of Jesus Christ. And here's now the caution. We need to be very careful not to read our current culture into what is happening in Scripture. These two types of slavery are very different. Very different. There's similarities. There's wrongs here, certainly, in this culture. But they're not exactly the same thing. And our responsibility before this book, God's Word, is not to stand as a critic over it, demanding it to answer our questions and concerns with what it does and does not say, but to understand what it does say and why. So here's the point. Our responsibility is to approach God's Word with humility. Do we really think that our sense of justice is stronger and wiser than Almighty God's? He values every human being far more than we ever could or ever could imagine. Do we really believe that with our limited understanding of this world, its evils, possibilities, and complexities, that we know better than our God how an issue like this should be addressed? That doesn't mean we don't care. That doesn't mean we're okay with it. It doesn't mean we don't evaluate history and make judgments that say this is according to God's word or this isn't. This was right according to God's word or this wasn't. Those are legitimate discussions, but we're to come to Scripture with humility. The Scriptures affirm the dignity of every human being, and we want to do so as well. The Scriptures consistently affirm that every human is so valuable to God that he would send his own son to die for mankind's sin. To make it possible for anyone to come to him in faith and be saved. That's how much he values every human being. The scripture's affirmation, its ability to change one heart and life at a time, when applied over time, can overthrow and demolish a societal evil like slavery as we've seen it done. We can say that was the result in Great Britain, 
and later in America, scriptural principles of valuing every human being. The Bible may go about it in a way that's more indirect than we would like, but the emphasis of Scripture, and for our purposes, the emphasis of 1 Peter is on the need of mankind, first and foremost, to be changed more and more into the likeness of Christ. And as more and more people begin to choose to follow him, nations and kingdoms can be radically reshaped. They have been and they will be. We can be confident that the gospel changes everything. So now in verse 18, we read, Be subject, servants, be subject. And here's the governing command of all that will follow in verses 18 through 15. It's following in with the context of what Peter's been saying. This word functions as a command. And notice that verse 18 says, Be subject to your masters with all respect. Now the word for respect here is the Greek word for fear. So who is Peter saying is to be feared in this master-slave relationship? The context would argue that it is God who is to be feared. So this passage, we would better translate it, be subject to your masters with all reverence or all fear. That would best fit with what we just saw in verses 16 and 17. In chapter 3, 14, Peter will tell these believers to have no fear of men. Because back in chapter 1, 17, he's commanded believers to conduct your lives with fear, and that's fear of God, throughout the time of your exile. So the reason Christian slaves are to submit to masters is because of their relationship with God. He's reorienting that within the hierarchy of obeying God first. And that gives a slave, in this context, great hope, great comfort, great confidence. I'm a child of God first before I'm a slave. He's looking after me. I am to obey God rather than men. If a boss is commanding you to sin, you must refuse to obey. But the danger and need for wisdom is that we're often very eager to look for a way to wriggle out from under human authorities. So as we apply this in our situations, under those that we submit to as our masters, are you truly being asked to violate God's word, or are you just not like the authority you have? focus of Peter's instruction here is toward consistent submission and obedience to the authority's commands. Now, the difficulty of this verse is introduced in the second half of verse 18. And it'd be easier, it might be our preference to say, I'd rather not deal with this, because this is what makes this really difficult. Peter's going to admit, you're going to submit to unjust, ungodly authorities. Be subject not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. The word for unjust here means harsh, crooked, dishonest, or hard to deal with. Peter's very clearly saying that believers cannot opt out of obedience because their masters are sinful or wicked or harsh. Again, he's not saying they're absolute, obey them if it means sinning, but he's saying you don't get to make excuses and say, I'm not going to obey. Commentator Thomas Schreiner succinctly summarizes, slaves cannot exempt themselves from doing what a master says, even if that master is wicked. Now, why? What is Peter aiming at? 
He'll answer in verses 19 and 20. Look down again there. And notice the book ends to these two verses. He says, for this is a gracious thing. Okay, that, that's counterintuitive, isn't it? It's gracious to suffer unjustly from a cruel or wicked or harsh master? How is that a gracious thing? It's grace for a Christian to suffer even injustice for living out his Christian life before a harsh master. And here's the principle. Those who suffer unjustly are recognized and rewarded by God with his grace. Verse 20 explains there's no credit given for doing wrong and earning a harsh response. But doing good and receiving unjust punishment from a human master is a gracious thing in the sight of God. We'll find out more why as we continue. But notice that Peter's repeating teaching that he's received from Jesus himself. In Luke chapter 6, 27 and following, Jesus said, I say to you who listen, love your enemies. Do what is good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? What difference am I making in your life? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do what is good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And then he concludes, but love your enemies. Do what is good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Go ahead and take hurt to your own person. Then your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. You'll show yourself to be a son of your Father. For he is gracious to the ungrateful and evil. Peter's saying that to show patience in the face of injustice is true evidence of Christian character. This is how God treats sinners. Submission pleases God. Now we all have bosses or people that we have to answer to. It might be a teacher. It might be somebody that's uh, coming to your home as a babysitter or some other kind of authority figure, often they create a lot of headaches for us, right? There's no perfect authority. They may openly mock your faith at work. They may overlook you on purpose or belittle you because of your Christian testimony. How are you responding to that trial? In discussing this text with several men in our church family this week, one mentioned that in our society today, employees essentially believe that it's their right to complain about their boss. That's just the normal topic of conversation. Everybody talks about the boss. Do you agree that you have that right? Does Peter? Who do you really serve at work? That's the question. A noted Christian author shared this story about a time he was on an airplane. There was a very long delay on the tarmac, and a man sitting nearby grew impatient and eventually gave the flight attendant all kinds of trouble. Just in his exasperation and frustration, he took it out all on her. But she consistently replied to him with grace and helpfulness. This Christian man was so impressed by her professionalism that he stayed in his seat while the other passengers deplaned just so he could thank her personally. He said, ma'am, please tell me your name so that I can write to your airline and commend you for your wonderful performance today. She kindly responded, thank you, sir, but I don't work for the airline. He 
He was obviously very surprised by this. And then she said, I work for Jesus Christ. This wasn't just a glib or sanctimonious remark. This is what she had kept in her mind in order to serve while she was being mistreated. I work for him. I work for him. That doesn't mean in our culture, in our workplaces, we don't have opportunities, even responsibilities, to talk to someone if things aren't being handled well. But is your demeanor fitting with what Peter is saying? Number two, we see the suffering of the innocent servant. The suffering of the innocent servant. First, we'll see that the suffering servant is our example. Verse 21 functions as the center or the focal point of these verses. Peter writes, For to this, the patient and cheerful endurance of mistreatment when you least deserve it, he says, this kind of thing you've been called. To this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you. Leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. The word for example here does not quite sufficiently capture all the significance of the Greek word. The word means a pattern to follow. It's the picture of a small child learning the alphabet by tracing the teacher's pattern of the letter. It can also mean the idea of the outline of a picture given. And the parameters are given. And the child is to fill in the picture. Make it clear. The point is that the pattern has already been predetermined and laid out by Jesus. It's not just like here's one example. Here's the example. The ultimate example. The only example. And the goal is to follow him so that we might follow in his steps. We might say his footprints. He's gone this way before us as a father makes footprints in the snow and his son is jumping from one step to the next in order to follow. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So he's saying this is his path, the path for every believer. He's shaping our expectations. He's helping us see reality. If you're following Christ, if you're loyal to him, you'll face some kind of unjust treatment. This is his path for you. Matthew 16, 24 says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wants to come with me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That isn't just come after me and maybe do a few of the things that I do. It's follow right directly after me. Remember that Jesus' final words to Peter, recorded in the book of John, are these same words. Follow me. And it was in the context we saw in John 21 that Peter is understanding it means following him through hardship and suffering for being identified with him. The very thing Peter denied that he was. We also see the suffering servant is our substitute. Verses 22 through 25 then take up the language of Isaiah 53 as Peter carefully applies that text to Jesus. Jesus is clearly the suffering servant of Isaiah. This is the most extensive explanation of how this part of the servant song of Isaiah is fulfilled in Jesus the New Testament. It's his servant song. Peter tells us that Jesus was sinless. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. He was silent 
under the persecution and suffering. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Now just pause. Doesn't this go against every grain in your body, right? We desperately want to cry out in frustration and retaliate in anger when we're mistreated. We feel like we're being pushed into a corner and the only response is to defend ourselves. So how does Jesus do this? He was perfect, completely innocent. What hope do we have that we can obey a command like this and respond like he does? Jesus accepted the unjust treatment against him without rebellion, without retaliation, because he was absolutely confident of being vindicated by God. His focus was somewhere else. It wasn't on the temporal hardship. Paul writes this way in applying it in chapter 12 of Romans. He says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Try to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, on your part, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourself. Instead, leave room for his wrath. Let him be the judge. For it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, say the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Show the power of Christ, the excellencies of him whom you know. In a village in South Korea in 1948, a band of communists had taken control of the town for a brief violent period. They harassed and persecuted many in that village, even killing some of them. A pastor was forced to witness the execution of his two oldest sons, Matthew and John. They died as martyrs at the hands of these violent criminals, calling on their persecutors to place their faith in Jesus Christ. Later, when those communists were finally driven out, one of the young men of that very village was identified as having joined the communists and having been ordered to fire the shots that killed this pastor's son, his sons. His execution was ordered for these murders. And that would have been just. But this pastor requested that the charges be dropped and that this criminal be released into his custody for adoption. His 13-year-old daughter, Rachel, the sister of her murder brothers, testified in support of her father's unbelievable request. And only then did the court agree to release this young man. He became the son of that pastor and later a believer in the grace of Jesus Christ. This pastor wrote, and I thank God that he has given me the love to seek to convert and to adopt as my son the enemy who killed my dear boys. Notice how he gives all the credit to God. He gave me the love. I don't have this in and of myself. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Verse 24 explains that he was our substitute. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He became a curse for us. He willingly took that on himself so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So we follow in his footsteps because he's our savior and our substitute. We're honored to fill up his afflictions, we read elsewhere in the New Testament. And we're not saved by following his footsteps. That's not how we 
have a relationship with him. Rather, we follow after him because we've been made his own. Because we have been adopted as the criminal. And our delight and desire has now been transformed to want to follow this merciful and gracious Savior. That's what Peter's pointing at. He's saying, remember the spiritual realities of who you are as you live in a place where you're going to be mistreated. Finally, in verse 25, the suffering servant we see is our shepherd. Look back again at that final verse of chapter 2. For you, makes it personal, you had need is what he's saying. You were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You see how Peter is offering us wisdom and grace in pointing out our need and God's solution? We're sinners. We stray. Peter's telling us that Jesus is suffering in your place as your example, and he's committed to your continued growth. He's shepherding you personally, watching over you. He's overseeing you. So what is he up to putting you in that workplace? where he knew you would end up being mistreated, undervalued, where you would end up under that boss's authority. Did he make a mistake? Now, it's possible that he's leading you to move on to a great, uh, in a gracious and godly manner without resentment and bitterness. There's a way to do that, and we have the freedom to do that. These slaves did not have that freedom. But the question is, how is he seeking to glorify himself through your godly response to being treated unfairly. Now, what is the solution? What hope and help does this passage offer to us this morning? It teaches us to hand your unjust suffering over to Christ and continue to trust in his sustaining grace. I want you to see this isn't my conclusion or my suggestion. We see it in our text. Look back again at verse 18. We'll see it in several places. It says, be subject with all reverence or fear of God. Verse 19, when mindful of God, when being conscious that he is sovereign over all of your circumstances, over who your authorities are. Verse 20, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Peter's comforting. He's paying attention. He knows your authority. He knows his or her heart far better than you do. He's paying attention. Don't be afraid that he's not. Here's the first part of the solution. Put your focus on him. Is there a way to do good to that boss, though they don't deserve it? Is there a way to work so that you demonstrate you're not really my authority? And though I'm going to submit to you because God's called me to, I'm serving the Lord Jesus Christ as his slave first and foremost. Colossians 3, 22 through 25 reminds us of this again. It says, slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched in order to please men, but work wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it enthusiastically as something done for the Lord and not for men, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. Not now, but later. You serve the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done, and there is no favoritism. You know what he's saying? Justice is in my hands. Be patient. Be Godward in your thinking. 
in your trusting? And that's the second piece for us. Again, rehearse the gospel. Remember that he suffered for you. And this is how our suffering differs from his. He suffered for our sins as our substitute. Our suffering in a workplace under a harsh master is not the same, is it? And he's offering you this example as a part of this of his grace. How? How did he do it? Jesus handed over all of his circumstances to the one who judges justly. That's what he did. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He turned it over to God. He delivered it over to him, his entire situation. Those abusing him, all the hurt that he received. He suffered the most horrendous miscarriage of justice that will ever be experienced. And here's the comfort. He went before you. He went before you. He's not asking you to suffer something that he was unwilling to experience himself. Isn't that the beauty of Christianity? What God comes and enters the fallenness of this world and suffers the ultimate rejection and humiliation and suffering like our Christ. If he would do this for you, can you not suffer relatively milder injustice where you're working from other authorities? He's showing you the way forward. Trust it all into God's hands. Just think of it. Jesus is essentially saying, I will not carry the burden of revenge, though wicked men deserve it. And someday God will judge. He's saying, I will not carry out the burden of sorting out their motives, though I actually, as God, know theirs to be wicked. I will not carry the burden of self-pity, though I'm completely innocent of wrong. I will not carry the burden of bitterness, though this is incredibly cruel. I will hand it all over to God and his will. He has more than enough wisdom and power to judge righteously every thought, motive, word, and deed. Jesus is saying, I will trust him. So what is God doing in your life today? This is a hard passage, isn't it? It's a challenge. Are you struggling with being treated unfairly? Don't let it embitter you. Hand your suffering over to him and trust in the grace that he promises to give you. He sees this as an opportunity for you to grow. He's going to enable you to follow him in his steps. We can't do that on our own. You must ask for that. He's promised you right here that he will shepherd you and he's overseeing your life. Choose to glorify him in your response. Let's close this morning with prayer. I'd like to give you a few moments of silent reflection as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. As you consider, where is it, Lord, that I've been responding perhaps with a wrong attitude or wrong words? Do I need to repent? Not just to you, but maybe to those around me that I've been speaking evil of my boss with? Do I need to speak to an authority? God wants to grow you through these pressures. That's his kind parenting of his children. Will you trust him? Will you see Christ as the solution and the encouragement?
So, Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you've written things that we sometimes don't want to look at or admit about ourselves. And yet we thank you for the abundant grace that you offer. Lord, we are unfaithful. We struggle to respond like Christ does. This is an extremely high calling that we can't fulfill in and of ourselves. We don't have the humility, the insight, the wisdom, the patience. And yet, Lord, you offer all of these things as you died for us, as you've made us one with you, as you give us the grace of your Holy Spirit to teach us all things, to confirm your word in our hearts. Help us to respond with humility, with submission to you, for you truly are our master. We love you and we want to serve you faithfully. Enable us to do what we cannot do on our own. In Jesus' name, amen.